Hello and welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about being Iranian-American on television and the difficulties of covering U.S.-Iran tensions, and also the toxic environment that surrounds journalists, especially women. My guest today is Asiya Namdar, a news anchor for CGTN America here in Washington, D.C., and a former anchor at CNN. She has reported on many international stories and interviewed prominent figures such as Nobel Peace winner Shirin Ebadi, former U.S. President Jimmy Carter, Jordan's Queen Rania, and Pakistani Prime Minister Binazir Bhutto. Asiya, welcome to the Iran Podcast. Thank you so much, Negar, for having me. Let's talk about Asya Namdar. Who is Asya Namdar? I know you have lived for some time in Iran as a kid and then the rest of your life, I guess, in the U.S. Where were you born? How did you end up in Iran? How did you end up back in the U.S.? Tell us a little bit about Asya growing up. Well, honestly, it's not that um, interesting, but I'm obviously Iranian. My parents are both Iranian. But I was not born in Iran, which um, a lot of people are surprised to learn. My father worked for the World Bank, and he was on assignment in Karachi, Pakistan, when my mom was very pregnant. (laughs) So um, they lived in Karachi for a few months, and I was born during that time. And a few weeks later, with my sister, who was five years old at that time, they came back to Tehran and... They lived in Tehran till 1979. The revolution happened and we moved to the United States. We moved to California. My mom's sister had been living there way before the revolution and she was our contact and our only family in America who helped us eventually get a green card. So that's why we chose California. And before California, for a few months, we lived in Germany. I... um. You know, those were really, really hard years. Uh, My English was very um, basic. I knew how to say my name. I knew how to say where I'm from. But starting a new life in a new country um, in 79, when the hostage crisis began, was not easy. And I know I'm not alone in this. Many people like myself, Iranian-Americans, went through the same ordeal. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about that because we also had Yara El Jui, another Iranian American journalist, on this podcast. Much younger than I am. <laughs> yeah, from a different generation, but he talked about some of the difficulties or some of the stories of growing up, also in California, by the way. So tell me about growing up Iranian in America, basically, or Iranian American. In those years, right after, right after the revolution, how, how hard was it? Why was it so hard? It, I was 11 years old. I grew up in a very, very waspy, white, upper-class community called Piedmont, California. It was near Berkeley and Oakland. They had great public schools, so my mom and dad, you know, chose to settle in Piedmont. I remember the first day of middle school... Um, my sister was in the neighboring high school and she knew English. She was 18. Her adjustment was a lot easier and mostly because she knew English. 
for me, who learned English as a second language in Iran, as I mentioned before, it was a true struggle. My mom dropped me off. She goes, you see that door? She said to me in Persian, go through that door, introduce yourself. The counselor will take you to your class. Don't be afraid. You'll be great. And I remember honestly, Negar, mm. petrified, shaking. How do I explain myself to this counselor? What do I say? Where is she going to take me? It was just an out-of-body experience. And to this day, there are things that happened. Interactions, isolation, just being on a foreign soil at 11 at a very politically charged time where kids would look at me and being in a, even in a, as an American starting middle school in a different neighborhood, different state is hard, let alone being Iranian. First of all, nobody knew how to say Iran, which bothered me. Mm -hmm. Nobody could say my name, Asie, which I was like, okay. Then they asked me the dumbest questions. Half the time, I didn't understand what they were asking me to be able to like give a normal, reasonable answer. There were a lot of lonely lunch periods where I sat by myself in the corner of a cafeteria or the playground, and I would just pretend wow. I'm fiddling with my various books because I did not want the humiliation of anyone knowing wow. I had no one to talk to. So I would just pretend, you know, I'm too busy for you guys. I'm really working on my homework. There were no cell phones back then. Mm. So I would just be jotting things down. I would be daydreaming about a day I would have friends, people to talk to, mm -hmm. people who would include me in their little clique, in their group. So that went on for a good year. And of course, eventually it did get easier. But I remember in Iran, for example, if you're in a classroom and a teacher walks in, you stood up as a sign of respect. Right. Well, nobody right. told me they don't do that here. So I remember in one of my classes, my history class, I think his name was Mr. Garvin. And I was there and, you know, my first week, really confused, trying to figure things out. All this business with changing classes, lockers, figuring out a combination to put my books, just being completely lost. And then being in this history class and an adult came in to talk to the teacher and I, I stood up. And the entire class burst into laughter. And wow. I thought, oh, my God. And someone tapped me on my shoulder and said, sit down, sit down. And I sat down. And guess what? I never did that again. <laughs> wow. It's interesting that you were talking about this age because and I had a little bit of a similar experience, but at a different age. When I was seven years old, we moved to Germany and I went to school in German. I didn't know a word of it as a seven-year-old. But now that I'm thinking that I guess that age was still a little bit too early for any of my classmates to understand the politics, the difference of the country, or, you know, to, to really get into this business of basically making fun or asking weird questions. And then at, the, at an older age, like you're saying, your sister is is already past a certain stage. I think yeah. this age that you were talking about, the 11 years, is an, is an age that kids already start to understand some of these issues, some of these differences, but they're not grown up or mature enough to, to deal with it in a mature way. And you end up with these stories. Tell me some more of these stories that were you felt humiliated or ridiculed or bullied even for just simply being different or an Iranian American? Well, I remember in eighth grade, um, my mom asked if I wanted to have people over for my birthday. And I said, well, mom, I don't know that many people. 
She was like, well, just invite a few friends. And I invited a few friends with my broken English. And everybody was very, very, they tried to be sort of nice at this point. A few months had gone by and they kept asking me if I'm going to have a cake at my birthday party. And I said, yeah, my mom is going to get a cake. Yes, of course. This is eighth grade. Yes, she's going to get a cake. So I came back to our home and I told my mom, mom, everyone is asking me about a cake. Like, make sure you have enough cake. And my mom kind of looked at me. She goes, okay, I'll have plenty of cake. There'll be sandwich, there'll be chiar shoot, there'll be all this other stuff too. And I was like, okay, nobody cares about that, <laughs> but thank you. So my birthday came and all these kids, probably six or seven, eight or nine, I don't remember, boys and girls, I was in heaven that someone was in our home to celebrate my birthday. They started asking about the cake. Mm-hmm. Where's the cake? Where's the cake? And I said to my mom, mom, where's the cake? So my mom brings out the cake and they're all looking at me. Well, they weren't saying cake. They were saying keg. Oh. <laughs> so I didn't know what a keg was in eighth grade. And I said, I'm sorry, what is that? And they all kind of gave me a flip answer and they saw my mom. I guess they thought it was going to be an unsupervised party for my birthday at age 12 with a keg. <laughs> So they all left and I had my birthday with my sister, with my mom and dad. So I don't know if that was so much about obviously a political thing. That was just me not knowing the language, but in terms of the hostage crisis, oh my God, constant question about questions about why did you take our hostages? You need to go tell your people. I mean, I I wanted to say the reason my family is in America because there was a revolution, mm. you know, and, and it was just, it was just, everything was hard for me to explain. And by the time my English was fluent enough, pretty much the hostage crisis more than a year later was over. I think for me, the hardest part was just the isolation, just being alone and having no one to talk to for, for a very, what seemed like an eternity at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I have two girls and I tell them, I'm like, please, you see someone, or I mean, they're, they're older now, but when they were in middle school and high school, I would say, if you see a child sitting by themselves, it doesn't matter where they're from. Mm-hmm. Just think of me. That's me, your mother. Yeah, I remember similar stories Yara was telling us of a different era, more about Ahmadinejad being the president. But the, the theme of all of these is similar. And the interesting part is that you both grew up in California. This is one of the most progressive and, you know, open states with lots of immigrants. Imagine how kids growing up in middle America in less diverse places. Lots of immigrants in California, at least in San Francisco Bay Area at that time. But in the small community of Piedmont, I was probably, honestly, I can count with my finger how many brown people there were. There was a lot of Asian Americans, a lot of whites, obviously, a few Indians, but I was sort of this weird novelty. So let's move fast forward a little bit i want to know why and basically how did you get into journalism through your studies work yeah i think the hardships that i endured as an adolescent defined me as a person and what i wanted to pursue as a career i mean i knew in 10th grade based on the idiotic questions people asked me about iran do you have oil in your backyard i mean asinine questions. I thought to myself, these young people are growing up in families, probably watching, you know, 
2020, where I think it was 2020 or Nightline, I forget which one, where the hostage crisis was a nightly event where we got nightly updates with Hugh Downs, if I'm not mistaken. And they were in their families and God knows what they learned. Clearly, they knew very little about Iran. I think I was pushed into the direction that I want to play a role in educating people, informing people about my beloved Iran. But then it sort of broadened into, okay, how about a field where you talk about the world, where you learn about the world, where you tell people about what's happening in the world, not just Iran, but the wider Middle East, where people have so little knowledge, especially Americans that I was exposed to. And I think that was my aha moment that, oh, there's this thing called journalism. And because I watched it with my mom and dad every night, the nightly news, the debates, it was our family was very much involved in news and what was going on because it was happening in their own country. And I think that made me decide, okay, well, I'm terrible in math. I am terrible in biology. Uh, What am I good at? And even at a young age, I realized I'm very good at writing. Even my broken English, there were powerful words that my English teacher said, okay, you need to work on your grammar, but your essay or your composition really was moving. And it was usually about my experiences as a child in Iran or my my immigration um, to, to America. So I hope I answered your question. But yes, those difficult experiences and what I went through as an 11, 12 year old in California was definitely the main reason why I chose journalism. I went to um, UC Berkeley, and I remember when I was applying for colleges, my mom and dad were unlike American parents. They're like, well, it's either UC Berkeley or Cal State Hayward, and if you can't go to those, we don't have an option for you. It wasn't like I could apply to 10 schools. All my friends were applying at this point. God, 10 schools, 12 schools. My sister graduated from UC Berkeley, so it was down the street, a 15-minute drive, And I said, oh my gosh, okay, well, let me apply to Berkeley. I got in, I got into the journalism program and I started various internships in local TV stations. And I realized, oh my gosh, I'm pretty good at this. At this point, my writing had gotten much stronger. And there were people at this point in those internships that truly believed in me and wanted to help me succeed, wanted to help me be a better writer. At this point, I had no aspirations to be on the air. I just wanted to be a really good journalist. I wanted to be a writer. And I, you know, interned at the local NBC station. I interned at the local um, KTVU in in Oakland. And then my last internship was at CNN in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And that's when I met a few people who said, you know what? Apply for entry-level job at CNN in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And once again, it was a gamble. I applied. I had no other option. And I got in in 1989, my first job out of college. And that job lasted 24 years. Of course, I wasn't, you know, entry level forever, but um, my career at CNN was 24 years. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about your CNN years, because a lot of people know you from that era. I think you're one of the first Iranians on on television in the U.S. as an anchor. Tell us how that happened and uh, a little bit about those years and that experience. You know, CNN um, really became my home. Um, I met my husband. I had a family during those years. Atlanta became my home. But I realized the same struggles that I faced as that lonely 11, 12-year-old 
history was sort of repeating itself in a different way because of my accent, for example. I'm very proud of my accent. It's who I am. But when opportunities, opportunities opened up for me to perhaps to do some on-air work, I had bosses who tried to stop me. And they said, well, you know, if your name wasn't Ossier, if it was like Jane or Christina, maybe your career would, you know, you would go farther along. Or if you had a British accent instead of an Iranian accent. But Negar, I really didn't let any of that stop me. I was a very good writer at this point. I had been at CNN maybe Mm -hmm. started in 89. I had my daughter, my first daughter, Layla, in 1995. And 1996, I started anchoring a program called World Report on weekends, which aired CNN International and CNN Domestic. And the way that came along was the person who was anchoring that show, the female anchor, she was no longer part of the program. There was an opening and um, they let me, you know, make a tape, an audition and sort of fill in for her on weekends. And then that filling job just basically became a job on the weekends. But I kept my writing job. So that was the entry into the on-air world uh, with my co-anchor. I, yeah, I think of him often because I learned a lot from him as well. Were there many Iranians on air at that time? The only Iranian on the air at that time was Christian Amanpour, uh, my former colleague. And um, she was a fantastic reporter, still is, and, and she's still there to this day. And I was the second on-air person um, at CNN and CNN International. And it was a it was truly a learning experience, and we covered many, many breaking stories. And I have nothing, nothing bad to say about my years at CNN, except there were challenges along the way, like any job, there are challenges, proving yourself, paying your dues, you know, messing up on the air, mispronouncing things. And ironically, the same bosses who tried to stop me um, ended up giving me the biggest opportunity of my life. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that the first two Iranians were actually women, both. Iranian yeah. American yes, women. you're absolutely right. On the air and basically trailblazers for for now what is a larger community of Iranian-American journalists across the U.S. and various outlets. Let's also talk about you now work at CGTN here in Washington. Tell us how that happened. You moved the move basically from CNN, from Atlanta to Washington and to this new channel? Well, six years ago, um, really, I was having second thoughts about my future at CNN. Honestly, I had done everything. I started out, you know, making $12,000 a year, uh, being an AP, being a video journalist, operating the teleprompter, operating the camera, editorial assistant, writer, copy editor, anchor, reporter, I mean, you name it. And I thought to myself, okay, there is really no room for growth for me. And CNN, even at that time, was becoming more, much of the focus was on domestic news. I just felt like perhaps opportunities for me were dwindling. So out of the blue, one of my former executive producers at CNN International ended up in Washington with At that point, it was called CCTV America, and I came to Washington for an interview, 
And I knew if I got the job, it would be a big decision. And I never thought they would offer me the job. And they did. And my husband and I, who he's still at CNN to this day, we sat down, we talked about it. And it was a good opportunity. Um, it was good for our family financially. It was also good for me to explore how, you know, another network um, might be operating, how they cover the world, how they cover America. Much of their focus was on international news. And they offered me the job and I made one of the hardest, if not the hardest decision of my life. Uh, my older daughter was in college then. She wasn't affected. But I left I mean, I don't want to say I left, but I took the job and I got a little apartment in Northern Virginia and I started a job in Washington and I would commute back and forth to Atlanta and my younger daughter, Roya, was only 12 at the time. I will always, always have reservations about that decision, not so much about starting something new in a completely different place, a completely different job, uh, but about my primary role as a mother was to be with my children till they graduated from college. And I made a difficult and painful choice to start something new that was better for me career-wise. I mean, I guess it still remains to be seen, but it certainly gave me more opportunities in terms of high-profile interviews, in terms of travel, in terms of covering regions that I wanted to cover, Asia, mm -hmm. Africa, but Negar, to this day, I, I don't know if I made the right decision. I don't know because I missed a lot. Even though I went back and forth, you know, I wasn't home to make dinners. I wasn't home to make lunches. I wasn't home to make sure my daughter got to school on time and got picked up on time. And sometimes my husband would be late picking her up. And there was all this drama for her at that pivotal age of 12. Mm -hmm. And I was not around it's it's interesting that you bring this up because i think a lot of people not just about you but people when they look at these jobs when they see a person on television it looks so glamorous it looks so uh, because you only see the finished product it looks so amazing and a lot of younger um, journalists or younger students who want to get into journalism, who want to be on TV, who want to have their own show, be anchors for news and everything, only see the outer side of it, that it's all fun and glamour. And But when you talk about the actual difficulties of the job, all of these very difficult decisions that you have to make, I think this is um, that part that doesn't is not seen as much when you only look at this job from television but I want to ask you sharing besides sharing your experience what you recommend for younger journalists who want to get into broadcasting television or just younger students or younger people who want who are interested in getting into journalism what do you how can they make their own career path how can they basically get to levels and achieve um, what you have achieved? Well, the first thing I would say is you have to have the curiosity about the world. You have to care. You have to have the drive to ask the right questions. So curiosity, drive. Mm -hmm. You cannot be worried about your Christmas holiday or 4th of July or Thanksgiving 
because I cannot tell you the countless times I have worked those holidays. The news doesn't stop because you want to have your Thanksgiving holiday off. Mm -hmm. The news doesn't stop at three or four o'clock in the morning when you want to be cozy and warm under your covers. I mean, the shifts are awful. Working holidays is no fun. It means time away from your family. So you really have to love it that much. It has to be in your DNA. It has to be in your soul, in your blood, in your heart. That's how much you have to love it. Let me make a note that we're recording this episode, by the way, on a Saturday. <laughs> exactly. So curiosity, drive and passion. Um, you got to let go of egos and be willing to learn. And just when someone wants to tell you something and teach you something, make sure you write it down, you let it sink in, show appreciation. But I think the best advice is that curiosity, passion, hard work, and there are no shortcuts. Do it ethically, do it the right way. And you, will, you can always live with yourself and be proud of yourself and still do news and journalism. Mm -hmm. And it's also important to realize that it's a competitive field. And when people see you as a news anchor, you didn't start as a news anchor, as you were just saying. You started as an intern. You operated teleprompters. You worked for years until you got to this level. But not everyone sees those intern years, of course, on television. They only see the anchor years. So, And one other thing I wanted to say is you have to be kind and considerate to everyone. I mean, I remember operating the teleprompter and making mistakes. And, and then news anchor would yell at me and scream at me. And I thought to myself, if I'm ever in that position, you just can't do things like that. You have to just be respectful and kind and teach people. She, she never bothered to say anything to me except yell at me for messing up the prompter. And I'm sure I deserve to be yelled at. But along the way, you just have to remember we're all in the same boat. Just because you're an anchor or an executive producer or a VP, it doesn't make you any better. We're all in this together trying to get a trying to get a good product on the air and do good journalism. You got to be nice to everybody. Um I'm glad you bring this up of being kind. I want to talk about a different dimension of all of this. The abuse and this is not inside the industry but a lot of it coming from the outside. The attacks, the smears, the and most of this has now moved online as basically one of the negative aspects of social media. There's so much cyberbullying. There's so much coordinated online attacks on journalists and specifically on female journalists. And then as me and you and some of our colleagues experience on a daily basis on Iranian female journalists, there's all these extra added layers, um, you know, smearing us of having dual loyalties of being lobbyists or mouthpieces or you know apologists for the Iranian regime or because we have a nuanced view on Iran or because we criticize some policy of this administration or the U.S. government and also yes as we have just recently uncovered again and exposed last year sometimes there are even online programs funded by the U.S. government this Iran disinformation project that was basically taking 
U.S. tax dollars and attacking Americans, attacking journalists, which again goes in line with what specifically what we've seen in the past four years, the attacks on media, calling journalists names, fake news, constantly putting a lot of pressure on people whose job is to deliver um, the message, basically. Tell us about your experience. Well, first of all, let me just say that Mm -hmm. no one knows more about that than perhaps a few of us, especially you, Negar. I mean, Mm -hmm. and your work in in covering this whole scandal with State Department, we would have never known about it if it wasn't for you and your diligence and your hard work and your colleagues' hard work. So for that, um, thank you for opening our eyes. And it is really quite sad in the Iranian community um, what we endure um, for perhaps not agreeing or having the same position. I've never, I mean, it's just mind-boggling to me. So trying to take my freedoms away for decisions I may make during an interview with a high-profile Iranian government official, my decision has nothing to do with anyone else. But you attack me and want to take my freedom away, my choice away, at the same time you want to promote democracy and freedom in Iran? Everyone, of course, is entitled to their opinion. But if you attack me for something that has nothing to do with my job or me doing my job, asking the questions that I'm supposed to be asking, it's just, I, I, you're attacking me, you're using that as a way to basically make your point that my position is wrong. My position is all those things you mentioned. Your position is the right position. And then the name calling, the death threats, the character assassination. For what? For what? Did I hurt somebody? Did I? I mean, why? Because I made a choice to speak out, perhaps, on social media or in various conversations about the fact that I'm anti-war, that I'm anti-sanctions, But, oh, that makes me an Iranian government apologist. No, because I have also spoken out about the the atrocities of the Iranian government, of the things they've done. But no one takes that into consideration. The human rights abuses, the jailing of human rights activists, like Nasrin Sotudeh. So you, you can't do both. You can't say you're opposed to sanctions, you're opposed to war, you're opposed to 81 million people suffering and hurting. I can't do that because I'm going to get attacked (laughs) because I don't agree with you. Or I'm going to get attacked for choosing to wear a headscarf during an interview with Iran's foreign minister. Why is that anyone's business? I mean, I just, it's truly mind boggling to me. And a lot of it is noise. And the difficult decision becomes... Do you address it? Do you ignore it? At what point do you engage these people? Is it a complete waste of time? I have decided, in, men, in my case, most of the time, I ignore it. Because I don't want to waste my valuable time and energy on people like that. I don't know what the right answer is. But for me, for my peace of mind, I just glance at it, move on, because if I wanted to address every vulgar, misogynistic attack, oh my God, I couldn't get my job done. Mm -hmm. 
And as someone who has been a subject to a lot of these attacks, and I also observed them and monitored them, and I investigated and written exposés on this, I agree with you. A lot of it is noise, but it's not just, you know, organic, some angry people noise. A lot of this is coordinated. There's a lot of government, state-sponsored money poured into social media from the Iranian government, the U.S. government, the Saudi government, the UAE each have their own troll armies. They have coordinated online attacks on on people basically who don't report the news sometimes or views the way they like their policy to be presented. And as you were saying, I'm I'm also constantly thinking and you know considering how to respond if if I see a legitimate person an actual person not a troll because a lot of these accounts we're talking about these are not people these are trolls but if I see a person or a legitimate question not insults but if there is an a legitimate concern or feedback or criticism even or question I try to address it but if there's abuse if it's insults if it's attacks personal attacks we don't deserve that kind of abuse and i also don't think we should reward bad behavior online so anytime you respond to an insult an abuse an attack you're basically rewarding that bad behavior online and i think collectively as a community we should try to help improve the online space where we're all doing part of our work and and the extension of our work. These attacks are going to continue. There will be funds spent on these. A lot of them are are not out in the open, are not very transparent, are not public. So we may never know who is running what account, whose troll is government-based, who is just an angry person who doesn't want to reveal their identity because there are legitimate concerns. Let's say if it's someone in Iran, an activist or just an angry citizen um, who's speaking out against the government, they don't, they can't and they don't want to reveal their identity. But that doesn't mean that all of these trolls are in that situation and we found out that some of them are actually coordinated and sponsored. So to end it on a more positive note, tell us where you're going from here. Where do you see yourself and maybe the bigger news industry who's been under so much attack in the past four years going from here? I the, the honest answer is I don't know. I'm very mixed and conflicted about being, um, you know, far away from my family in, a, in Northern Virginia and D.C. when they're in Atlanta, Georgia. And this pandemic has made traveling, you know, we're very lucky we're all healthy, but it's has made everything complicated with quarantines and lockdowns. You know, it used to be so easy to just jump on a plane and go home and spend the weekend with my family. And it's just become harder and harder. So I'm having second thoughts about how long I want to do this for. It's been six years and, you know, six years of being separated from my husband six years of being separated from my daughters, who of course they have their own lives, but still, I would like to know what that's like again. I would like to live with my family, at least with my husband under the same roof. We're both tired. We're tired and exhausted. I don't know if it's the pandemic and our current political climate, but I don't remember a time that I would wake up every morning burned out and exhausted before my day even began. This started in January. When we, when U.S. and Iran were on the verge of a war, 
I remember thinking, oh my God, this is the worst January ever. And then, oh my gosh, it just continued. And now we're almost in what? October. I, I, I don't know. I, I want to be at peace. I want to have peace of mind. We have to wait and see what happens during this election. What happens with our jobs? What happens with the relationship with Iran and United States? United States and China? A lot to be on the lookout for in the next few weeks mm -hmm. and months. And I think at some point, if it was up to me and if I had no you know, financial worries, I would say I just want to be in the same home with my husband and have my children nearby and just have a normal life. And normalcy is something I haven't had in the last six years. And to be able to see my family, my parents, my elderly parents in Northern California, my sister, I mean, we're all very, very close. And with my parents getting older, I have this constant anxiety that, my God, when am I going to see them? At least with my children and my husband, I've, I have seen them three or four times since the pandemic began. You know, of course, technology helps with my sister. My mom and dad are not very savvy with technology. So I think my motto is one day at a time, because if I think about where I'm headed next, what I'll do next in my career or in my life, I will be so overwhelmed <laughs> that it'll just stress me out even more. I try to look at the positives, the good things in my life. We're healthy. I have a wonderful support system. I have a family that loves me. I love them. And just be positive. Find things that make you happy. As hard as it may be, hold on to those things. And don't worry about things you cannot control. Well, on that note, Asya, I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast. Thank you for having me and uh, caring what I have to say. And, and thank you to you, Negar, for fabulous, hard, diligent work exposing scandals. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. You can subscribe to us on your podcast apps. And please don't forget to rate and review the podcast. You can also sponsor the podcast and help us continue the project and be independent. You can follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast, where we post about our future guests and upcoming episodes. Until next time, goodbye.